BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It is Friday, January 27, 2023. Here's a headline in the New York Times that sort of gives you an idea of what's going on in the world. And it's going to be the lead question to my distinguished guest who's uh, waiting on deck. He doesn't know what I'm going to read. So this is total improv. Uh, and uh, I read this uh, story today, or this morning when uh, the New York Times arrived. I just was laughing out loud. I mean, I'm just like, uh, it's just there's so many levels that this is just too bizarrely funny. Uh, so here we go. Here's the headline in the New York Times: Trump in 2024? Question mark. Uh, GOP leaders aren't so sure. Uh, and so these two uh, New York Times reporter Reed Epstein and Lisa Lair dutifully tracked down various uh, Republican chieftains to ask them if they would be supporting Donald Trump uh, in 2024. Remember, Donald Trump is already an announced candidate. I know he, people may have forgotten that, but he did announce his candidacy uh, for president. Uh, and uh, so it's just it's it's so bizarre, like listening, reading the responses of these um Republican chieftains who feel compelled to say that they voted for Donald Trump in 2016. They voted for Donald Trump in 2020. They love Donald Trump. They really enjoy, they appreciate all the good he did for their party and their country, but they're not quite sure if he's electable anymore. And I'm like, you are not going to confront in any way the utter dysfunction and lawlessness of Donald Trump you, you, I mean, the reason he's not electable is perhaps because of the dysfunction and lawlessness of Donald Trump. So you think that if you are going to praise Donald Trump and not condemn his lawlessness and dysfunction, that somehow or other, that's a marketable plan for another candidate who is also praising Donald Trump and uh, thanking him for all the quote-unquote, good he's done for a country. Are you going to invite Donald Trump to your national convention if you don't nominate him? Are you going to allow him to give a speech 
Uh, yeah, I'm sure he's going to demand that if, if he is not the nominee. It's so bizarre. It's like twisted universe that they find themselves in. They're afraid to criticize Donald Trump, and yet they recognize that he's unelectable, so they want to distance himself, themselves from Donald Trump without alienating the thousands and thousands and thousands of MAGAites who dominate their party who still intend to vote for Donald Trump. Very bizarre state. It's, it's actually kind of funny in a weird, twisted way, as is everything with Donald Trump. It's kind of funny in a very weird, twisted, painful way. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest to ask him to introduce himself, and then I'd love to hear his thoughts. I'm pretty, probably, I'm pretty sure he read this the same story I did because he's a political junkie from way back. Take it away, distinguished guest. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and a contributing writer at Newsweek and The Week and Slate. Um, and uh, yeah, I have thoughts about this, definitely. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump, Republican leaders backing away from Donald Trump. Oh man, it's like an episode of Gilligan's Island. Do you know what I mean? It's like every, you know, it's like like clockwork. Every three months, there's an article that's like, ooh, you know, uh, GOP donors getting nervous about Trump's comments, uh, embracing QAnon Nazis and having dinner with, uh, you know, people who are from Mars. I, it, you know, it's there's nothing they can do about it. You know, fundamentally, because we already have the history of this, and the history of this is that in 2016. This sounds like I'm happy about it. I'm not. Okay, this guy's a complete maniac. I wish he would just like be vaporized from the face of the earth um, in a non-lethal way. Uh, so uh, I, I'm not happy about it, right? But it, but the reality is that in 2016, go back to 2016, um, and remember, you know, my, my man rides down the escalator says, you know, Mexicans are rapists and murderers. Some of them are good people. Um, just from day one, just unhinged, racist, toxic, incoherent, madman. Um, and all the GOP elites were like, well, this will never happen. <laughs> like, you, I mean, all the people that eventually uh, pledged fealty to him and turned themselves into dignity wraiths, you know, you can go back to 2015 and 2016 and find them saying some version of, uh, you know, well, he's a carnival barker. He'll never be the nominee. I, you can't, right? Donald Trump can't be the president. You know, Lindsey Graham said, said this kind of stuff, right? Like, uh, he's undignified, unfit for office. And then six months later, they're all riding the Trump train because he won the nomination. Um, and the reality is, like, he doesn't need the donors, um, not because he's filthy rich, but because he, he's got the small donor operation perfected. Um, I, I don't know how, but I, I'm always on Donald Trump's emails. I think someone puts, puts me on them vindictively. Um, and I get, like, 15 emails a day at my, at my Roosevelt address um, from, from Donald Trump for president. Uh, the other day, I got five emails from him about, like, um, the Grammys and the uh, whatever award show it was the... Oh, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, right? He was like, nobody watches the Screen Actors Guild Awards anymore because everything's woke, all the woke stuff with the woke people and the wokeness. Um, just like, just weird stuff that a president should not care about. <laughs> right? Like the, the SAG, it's too much wokeness and that's why nobody cares. Like all the stuff about the ratings, you know? And it, it's clear that it's all driven by him, right? He's sitting down with some staff every day with whatever he like huffed out of a out of a glue can from Fox News last night. Um, there was some there was some segment out about the SAG Awards um, and how much you know viewership is down. And and somebody was like, it's because they have movies about black people now. You know, it's like ridiculous wokeness. Uh, you know, anything black is equated with woke, of course, in this uh, in this distorted weird universe of theirs. 
So point being, um, all of the, the elites and the strategists and the donors, they can back away from him all they want. He's like the demon in that, and, 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 and it follows where he, it doesn't matter. He's just going to keep walking at you, you know, until he finds you. Um, and he's, if he wants to run for president, he's going to be a credible candidate. Whether the donors are on board, whether the strategists are on board, it doesn't matter. Um, it's been clear for a long time that the, the Republican professional class, in, you know, the professional political class, right? The people that cut the ads um, and, and raise the money and, 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 and bundle the funds and, uh, and set up the events and things like that, they, they hate him. <laughs> like, they think he's a joke. They blame him for all the Republican disasters of the last six years, appropriately, um, because this is, in fact, all his fault. Um, and it doesn't matter. Because the base of the party is a is a total mismatch for the for the establishment of the party, um, uh, the, the the party base is orders of magnitude more nativist and uh, and racist and um, invested in the culture war than than the people who are who are professional class Republicans. And this article is all interviews of, of professional class Republicans. And so, as much as we might like to think that that they're moving away from him. Um, the ultimate say about that rests with the voters. Um, and I've, I've only seen one poll um, of, of DeSantis leading Trump in a primary, national primary. Now, if they wanted to be a political party and, and exercise some control, some quality control, there's things that they could do to manipulate the, um, the order of the primaries and, and how you award um, uh, the delegates and things like that. Like, for example, you could just give all of the GOP delegates in 2024 to, like, Vermont, um, you know, to like the three states that you know are not going to vote for him, uh, or you front load them, right? Like, I mean, if if I'm if I'm running the RNC, if I'm God God help me, if I'm Ronna McDaniel, Ronna Romney McDaniel, who doesn't like to say Romney anymore, incredible. Um, if I'm Ronna McDaniel, I would be like, okay, what are the five? You know, what are the ten states that that he did the worst in in 2016? Um, put them first. And and try to and try to build some momentum against him by having him lose contests. Right, he didn't win every state. Um, think about you know who's who's running against him. Is it DeSantis? Put Florida first. <laughs> you know, put uh, here, here's the order of the primaries: uh, Florida, Ohio, where they still have John Kasich, I guess. Um, Vermont, New Hampshire. Um, I can't I can't think off the top of my head <laughs> anywhere else that he did systematically poorly. Um, you know, like Texas and Ted Cruz and stuff, but, um, you know, be clever about it, right? Like, if you don't want him to win, act like it. Put put some skin in the game. Don't just go on, you know, just don't go, don't go to the New York Times reporters and be like, we're really tired of Trump, you know, I just really got rid of this guy, and then just come crawling back, because they're going to come crawling back. Well, do. you know, uh, to your point, uh, the New York Times stories chronicles uh, a showdown that's developing... Uh, this is a showdown on Only Geeks, and so let's be honest on who we are, David. Uh, it will be following, uh, and that'll be to see who gets to chair the Republican Party, the National Republican Party. And you already alluded to um, uh, Rana McDaniel, who is the head, uh, and she will be challenged by Harmeet Dillon. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. And uh, who is affiliated with Ron DeSantis. So you have uh, a, a Trumper in the race, uh, McDaniel, who's the incumbent, uh, and she's being challenged by a uh, DeSantis uh, supporter or someone who DeSantis supports. Uh, I don't believe there's any difference between the mighty logically in how they view the world, but uh, 
there is a difference in that one is coming from with DeSantis's blessing and the other's coming with Trump's blessing. And so presumably you just want to send a message to voters that you're distancing yourself from uh, Donald Trump. You would elect the DeSantis uh, chair. I have no idea how this is going to unfold. This is something we'll be watching, uh, you know, in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, but this is what you were asking for. This is, you want to make a statement. You want to take your first, even if it's like not a substantive statement in terms of policy or initiative or worldview, et cetera, and so forth. But it has to. It is one in regards to personalities, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I think people often get bogged down in the delegate allocation rules with this stuff, and it may be something that that becomes a hot topic on the GOPs. I teach a whole class on this. Uh, presidential primaries and in the way those delegates are allocated and that they're, they're quite different between the two parties. But it's impossible to know in advance whether having them awarded proportionally or winner-take-all would be better or worse for DeSantis or Trump. You know, like if you're trying to game it for DeSantis, um, I think that there's some there's some obvious things that you could do there, including putting Florida. I know Trump is also from Florida, right? But just, I, I think at this point, I'd be pretty confident that DeSantis would win, would win a Florida primary. Um, and the way that, that these things have worked out in the past um, is once you win a few contests, the, the media narrative sets, um, and then and then you're the front runner, um, and then people start dropping out. Now that's not Trump, right? Like the people that drop out after they lose Iowa and New Hampshire are the people who were polling eight percent anyway, um, and and it's it's almost never cleared after the first couple of contests. But we also have never lived in a world. Where we have like a real state go first. Sorry, <laughs> with all apologies to Iowa, New Hampshire. I mean, we have like a, a state with a significant delegate hall up first, you know. And we can also talk at some point about about what the Democrats have done with this, right? Having South Carolina go first, and there's a big mess brewing about New Hampshire. Um, no one cares about Iowa, notably. <laughs> Iowa's just dead dead everyone, but um, but the New Hampshire Democrats are all all angry about this. But um, but we've always lived in this world where in the primary start in these two very small states, um, and it's and that's all about the narrative, right? Like you're not winning a significant number of delegates there. If you start with Florida, that's significant. That's a significant place. Um, and and if DeSantis wins, and if you if you really want to give him a head start, you you start with Florida and you make it winner take all, give all the delegates to DeSantis, right? And then and then Trump is in the hole. And what you could do, if you really, I'm, I honestly, Ben, I'm like, this is uh, this is 100 on the fly. <laughs> I'm just thinking out loud. But we could do is like be like, okay, so Florida's winner take all. Everything else is proportional, right? Um, and then and then you're immediately putting Trump in the position um, that Bernie Sanders was in after Super Tuesday in 2016, right? Where it's like you have a small a smallish deficit that's difficult to overcome because because there are no winner take all contests coming up. Um, and uh, that's, you know, that's ruthless. Probably people would not like it. <laughs> Trump would certainly not like it. But, um, but you have to start thinking as party elites. If you think Trump is, gonna, is, is like the, the Titanic that's going to drag the whole party down in his wake, um, you, you need to start thinking cleverly about how you can get him out. And you, you can't just be like, you can't run, right? I mean, they could. They could do that. Um, but, uh, but they're not going to. And they, they have to figure out a way. If they want, if they want it to be DeSantis, they got to figure out a way to give him a leg up. Okay, there's no way they're going to. Do, they can't even get themselves to criticize Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> they can't even bring themselves to criticize. He met with the Nazi guy. All right, you know, and they can't bring themselves to criticize him. He met with him. They had, he broke bread with him. Two of them. 
And so the thought of them uh, rigging their uh, nominating process to benefit uh, DeSantis and work against Donald Trump is just unimaginable. Donald Trump would raise such a stink about this. There would be just a holy war in the Republican Party. Uh, I welcome it, by the way, since you put it in my mind. I'm like, yeah, go for it. Do try that one. Front, front load Florida. <laughs> Make it winner take all. It was... <laughs> uh, but uh, I just... I can't imagine it. I mean, we're, we're heading into geek country, but I mean, since you raised it, take it. Uh, and it's political junkies that listen to us anyway, David. So um, talk about South Carolina as opposed to Iowa and New Hampshire leading off for the Dems and the difference that makes. Go ahead. Well, sure. Uh, um, You know, since the the dawn of the primary era in in 1972, um, when George McGovern wrote the rules (laughs) for this new system and then ran... Uh, as he said, I opened the door to the Democratic Party and 10 million people walked out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did he actually say that? Or did you just say that? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, 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 he's kind of a good guy. You know, he had a sense of humor about getting clobbered. Um, well, so, so Iowa has held a caucus and then New Hampshire has held a primary. And that's been, that's been the order. Um, and they've moved the actual calendar dates around. But, uh, but New Hampshire actually has a law on the books that says it has to have the first in the nation primary. Um, and the Democrats do not control the governorship in that state. They don't have the votes to overturn that. Um, but um, the, the, the DNC is under no obligation to seat the delegates from New Hampshire if New Hampshire defies the party and goes first anyway. Does that make sense? So um, after 2020... There was some there was some anger building in the party about this, um, not just because the Iowa Democrats like have screwed up their own caucus like multiple times now, in very very embarrassing ways, um, but also because these two states are profoundly unrepresentative of the Democratic coalition itself. Um, it's not that they're small, although they are. It's that they are super duper white. Um, these are two of the whitest states in the country, up there with like Maine, um, and the Democratic Party is not. A majority white party, right? Um, the Democratic Party draws a lot of its coalitional strength from Black voters, Latino voters, um, and so to hold these to 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 give that narrative uh, boost to the candidate that wins these non-representative states doesn't really make a lot of sense in terms of moving forward. Um, and then there's also it's also the case that the president's people take over the DNC, right? Like when Joe Biden became the nominee in 2024, Bidenistas took over the Democratic National, uh, the, the, the Democratic National Committee. Um, and, and they write, they write in between presidential elections, they write the rules for the nominating contest. Um, you know, who goes first? How do you allocate the delegates? What do you do with the superdelegates? Um, these are things that, um, that happen at, they, sometimes they happen at the convention, they happen between uh, the convention and, and the election. And it so happens that South Carolina is where Biden made his big comeback in 2020. If you remember, um, if you can sort of pierce back through the fog of the pandemic, um, right as the right as the coronavirus was about to mess with our lives, um, Joe Biden was was flailing. You know, I, I can't remember exactly what place he came in in Iowa, but he didn't win, <laughs> didn't win New Hampshire, um, and he didn't win Nevada. Right? Uh, it looked for a time like Bernie Sanders might run away with the thing. Um, 
and then all of a sudden, you know, the stock market starts crashing. People start flipping out about the virus. Um, and uh, uh, what's his name? The congressman from South Carolina, James Clyburn. James, James Clyburn. Clyburn. Um, who, who's, I, I, I maybe one of the most powerful people in their own state that I can think of in the whole country in terms of, uh, setting the agenda for, for the state party. Uh, Clyburn came out for, for Biden. Um, all of a sudden Biden comes from behind. I don't know that he ever would have lost South Carolina, but he like blew the doors off in South Carolina. Um, and then went on to, to trounce everybody on, on Super Tuesday, including my favorite piece of the 2020 primaries was whatever deal he cut with like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar to drop out on the same day and endorse him right before Super Tuesday. Remember this? Um, because like Klobuchar probably would have won Minnesota. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know what happened to, to Mayor Pete there. Um, you know, <laughs> I never thought that the, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana was going to be our nominee, but, uh, but he, you know, he cut some kind of deal with the two of them. They dropped out, endorsed him. Um, and he won, he won almost every state on Super Tuesday. And that was that. Um, and so the, what I mean by what they're going to say is like we want a more representative state, right? To to go first, that's nonsense. Okay, I, I mean don't get me wrong. South Carolina is a more representative state. Okay, um, but it's actually it, it's it's a um, has a much higher percentage of black voters in the in the Democratic primary electorate than the Democratic coalition as a whole. So we've kind of swung from one extreme to another. Um, the state that actually uh, that's pro- that is probably most representative of the Democratic coalition as, as a whole is uh, this this right here. This great state of Illinois um, has <laughs> has a very very similar voting mix um, to the to the Democrats as a national party, um, but uh, but that's not necessarily what it's all about, right? It's about the, it's about Joe Biden setting himself up to to walk away with the nomination if it in fact is contested. Um, and I will say also the DNC does, is under no obligation to hold any primaries <laughs> or caucuses. They could just be like, they could do what the Republicans did in 2020, which was they didn't really, they didn't really hold a primary and they didn't hold a contest. Um, and hence there was none. So um, I don't think that they're going to do that because that would probably make everybody really angry. But um, but Biden, what Biden is doing is he wants to ensure that if there is a challenger, a serious challenger, I'm not talking about like Marianne Williamson <laughs> or whatever, whatever knucklehead it crawls out of the woodwork to take on Joe Biden. I mean, like a like a real challenger, right? Like somebody with a constituency, like you know, whether that's Bernie Sanders or somebody from the left or somebody from to his right, maybe I don't know. Um, but uh, but a significant national figure. Uh, I think that the the choice of South Carolina is set up to kneecap somebody from the progressive left who might be trying to challenge him. Um, you know, he wins big in the first contest and the, you know, everything else folds like a house of cards. Yeah. No, I, I can't imagine, uh, somebody, a prominent figure in the democratic party uh, challenging Joe Biden. I know there's a movement, uh, to encourage, uh, Democrats to, uh, ask Biden to step down. I get their emails. Uh, but I don't see that having legs or traction, it's up to Joe Biden. If he doesn't want to run, then that's a whole different ballgame. Uh, but I just can't see it uh, that happening. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it'll be Joe Biden versus someone. And I keep standing by with Trump uh, that he'll be the nominee. Uh, and uh, so I'll move on to the next Republican I want to talk about, uh, an updated thoughts, uh, very similar to uh, Donald Trump in terms of her propensity for lying. That would be Congressman George Santos, who's uh, in just like one 
quick month, short month, has emerged as one of like the the leading figures in the Republican Party. I would say that he probably is more identifiable to, uh, as a congressman than any other Republican congressman. Oh, I don't know, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, but, um, David, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, just the, uh, the sheer collection of lies that he's, been, uh, he's uttered about himself. It's, it's comical. Uh, at this stage, uh, and um, but the Republicans are sticking with him, and they don't care if it makes it look like they have no standards whatsoever. Uh, they don't care uh, it, if it just completely violates like pretty much all the basic tenets of being a public figure. They're sticking with him. They don't even need him, by the way. McCarthy has his majority without him. It's like a four-person majority, right? He could lose George Santos. Um, I need to know, uh, is, uh, in your humble opinion, has America shifted across the board to the point where lying is doesn't matter? Uh, Donald Trump is, no one in the Republican Party will denounce Donald Trump for lying. No one in the Republican Party, uh, at least in Washington, is going to denounce, has been denouncing George Santos for lying. So is this now the new, you know, the new virtue in our country? Yeah, lie. Do what you want. Like, but William Bennett is going to have to rewrite his book of virtues to have a section on lying and how it, uh, lying is not bad. Um, <laughs> honesty is overrated. Your thoughts about this? I mean, how this guy got through any kind of vetting process in the party is just, it's just beyond me. You know, uh, Elise Stefanik, another another congresswoman from New York, who's now high up in the leadership of the party, and went to bat for him, campaigned for him. Um, I think knew that some of his biography was uh, was fabulous, you know, and uh, and they just they just did it anyway because they were stuck with him as a nominee, and they they knew once he had won his primary, if this stuff came out and they and they denounced him in any way, he would lose because this is not a landslide. This is not like a landslide Republican district, right? This is a um, this is a competitive district in New York. Um, and so, you know, because they care about power above everything else, they, they let them, they let them keep, keep going through the election, knowing that eventually all of this stuff would come out. You, I mean, you can't keep a lid on just like totally fabricating your whole resume. <laughs> like you can't keep a lid on that, right? He lied about where he went to high school, lied about where he went to college, lied about where he worked. Um, this, just all this stuff. He's, he's used multiple different names. Uh, they have him on camera introducing himself as Anthony DeVolder. Um, I, you know, it's, you could go on and on. The uh, New York Magazine has a great list of every every lie that he's told, um, and it's uh, it's not a short article. Then you know what I mean? <laughs> it's 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 a long one. Um, he lied about uh, founding an animal charity. He apparently swindled um, money from a, a disabled uh, U.S. military veteran who was trying to get surgery for his pit bull, um, and then raised the money for this dude for this dude's dog, and then just took it. We are talking about someone with with no shame whatsoever, you know. And you read this list from from beginning to end, and you're like, my God, like how could they still support him? Like this is nuts, right? And then you think about the party leader, um, and you think about how long the article would be about his lies, right? Uh, Donald Trump, right? Like going back to the beginning of time, uh, he just makes stuff up on the fly. Like um, 
Do, do you remember during his presidency, he would say like, things that happened. To, he did things that happened under Obama. You know, uh, I, I passed this law for the for the for the veterans, and it was like you go back and it was like that law was passed in like 2015. Like you're just you're just lying, and it's not this kind of like uh, politician exaggerating stuff. You know, um, where it's like somebody like Joe Biden, be like the economy's growing at a, a historic rate. You know, and PolitiFact will be like, well, we've looked into it. And the economic growth rate of 2.9% is not actually historic. So we give Joe Biden five Pinocchios. Um, it's, it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, people are exaggerating. He shouldn't do it, right? I don't think he knows what he's doing anymore. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about just going back to our last conversation for just a second. <laughs> 82-year-old Joe Biden on a national stage debating someone in 2024, particularly if it's DeSantis, strikes me with just absolute terror. You know what I mean? Like, DeSant- DeSantis is a terrible debater, too, but he's young and, yeah. and not in early senescence. You know what I mean? Like, he, he's, he's with it. Um, he's a, he's a, a horrible little mongrel of a, of a person, but he's, but he's with yeah. it, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, so that strikes, that strikes me in my heart. But, uh, but Trump is a liar. I mean, he's a fabulist. It's just a serial exaggerator, right? Like, yeah. what people would work for him, he just, like, wouldn't pay them. Um, a lifelong trail of, of bankruptcies and lies and affairs and um, uh, cover-ups and, and things like you know the, the man probably has it, you know why they were sorting around for the classified documents it probably has a whole separate room for all of the NDAs that he's had women sign over the course of his life and I mean it probably has like oh, somebody's like what's in that room I was like oh that's the NDA wing of, of Mar-a-Lago okay yeah. that's where we keep the NDA archives for the president uh-huh. Um, and so when you think about it, it's Santos is really not any worse than Trump. Um, it, he's it's it's more brazen lies yeah. about about who you are. Um, it's like if if Trump had been like, um, you know, I pitched for the Yankees uh, in their double A. <laughs> I was a double A pitcher for the Yankees in 1968. Yeah. And I just decided that I was better at uh, selling buildings. Um, that's a Santosian <laughs> lie. Right. Yeah. The, the Trumpian lie is is different, right? Um, but uh, but Santos ha- is is just. Um, I, I'm guessing there's you know I'm guessing he's unwell. You know, like I don't know who would do this. Um, yeah. Just just make up things that are easily checkable. Like I I got a degree from this college and a reporter can call the college and be like, did this person go to this college? And they say no. <laughs> not hard. It's not that hard to figure out that it's a lie. Um, but the the lies of Donald Trump never really had any consequence for him with his own voters. And so I think Santos is, is perfectly, uh, perfectly right to think that he pro- he might not ever pay a penalty for this, um, with, with Republicans themselves. It's a little well, bit harder to carry water for because you can't deny it. You know, like with the Ukraine scandal, it was like, it was a great phone call. <laughs> you know, you can't be like, no, he did graduate from Baruch college because he didn't, yeah. you know? Um, but, um, I don't know. He's probably a, he's probably, I'll probably be president in 10 years. Well, I, uh, I think we've reached a a stage in politics, um, where it only matters, uh, how you're going to, if you're going to follow your party leadership, uh, if you're just going to follow your party leadership, then you're, um, it's not like you're a distinguished Congressman, you get what I'm saying. You haven't been elevated to this position that children, school children, will look up to. You're a cog in a machine, 
So if George Santos will have the exact same voting record as Stefaniak, the congresswoman from New York, really what difference does it make that he's a compulsive liar and, and embarrassingly so? Kevin McCarthy needs his vote. He's dedicated to give him his vote every time. We'll accept him. That's good enough. Uh, and uh, that's, that was the argument put down by the evangelicals to support Trump. It doesn't matter if Trump, as a human being, violates every tenet we supposedly believe in, uh, how we should go about our life. Uh, as long as he is dedicated to putting anti-abortion judicial candidates up for nomination, we will support him. Uh, and so going back to the vision of a Joe Biden um, Ron DeSantis debate, which is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> it does not matter to Democratic voters. It doesn't matter to voters in general. I think if if Joe Biden is such ah ah, you know, and DeSantis is peppering him with punches, and and Joe is like foggy because the people who abhor Ron DeSantis will vote for Joe Biden, even if he's senile. We, we saw America reelect um, Ronald Reagan when he had Alzheimer's. And, uh, and I think there'll be a significant segment of people, by the way, who will uh, kind of sympathize with Joe Biden in a situation. You know, I'm not that quick on my feet, you know, and you're picking on him. I, Chicago elected Richard M. Daly year after year, and he, wasn't any more cogent when it came to speaking than Joe Biden is. Trust me, I lived through the daily years. So I feel we're at that stage in politics, David, where um, nothing matters anymore. You could be a liar. You could be incoherent. You could be uh, uh, just a notorious womanizer, etc., and so forth. Uh, and as long as you make the right vote, you're elected. I believe there are no standards, nothing matters. Do you think I'm too cynical? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's the LOL, nothing matters theory of politics, right? And, it, and it, that theory of politics held up pretty, pretty well under Donald Trump. Um, I think you can make a pretty credible case that without the pandemic, he, he would have been reelected. Maybe narrowly, but he, but he may have been reelected. Um, and uh, I don't know if you saw this news the other day, um, but there's allegations that DeSantis was like a torturer at Guantanamo Bay. Have you seen this? Okay. Um, which, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, I think would have just cut him off at the knees immediately as a serious presidential candidate. You know, pre, pre like, say, let's say pre-George W. Bush, Republican Party. Um, if, there was, if there was somebody that came out and was like... Um, touting his Vietnam record, and it turned out that he was one of the soldiers at, at, at Millet, you know, the, the, the massacre that happened in South Vietnam. I think the, I, I think the party would walk away from, from somebody like that. I think the voters wouldn't have liked it. Um, it's like, you know, we still got the, you know, stab in the back narrative about Vietnam, but we can, we can agree that slaughtering Vietnamese civilians is not good, right? Like, with the people that did that should not be the president. Um, and today, you just have this, like, extremely radicalized Republican Party where cruelty and, and sadism and bullying um, are part and parcel of success in a party primary, right? Like the bigger jerk you are, the better. Um, and I think that DeSantis, having been a former torturer, would probably help him in the, in the Republican primaries. They'd be like, yeah, you know, we should have tortured him more, 
<laughs> like, I mean, that's probably what I'll say. Like, there's no back, there's no backing off of, of anything. There's no apologizing for anything. There's no taking responsibility for anything. Um, and it is, in a broader sense, shocking to me because I spent my four, you know, my my formative years um, hearing about the party of family values and traditional values and personal responsibility. Um, and part of personal personal responsibility is owning up to your mistakes and apologizing for them, um, trying to become a better person. Um, and I, I simply don't understand how a party that's dominated by evangelical Christians, I'm sure another, uh, I'm sure someone from the faith could explain this to me, but I don't understand how a party dominated by, by evangelicals um, doesn't demand any sort of remorse or, or, or attempted redemption before they, before they forgive people and say like, well, you're just, you know, George Santos just one of God's part of God's flock, you know, and he's just, he's on his, on a special journey. Uh, and then part of that special journey was making up where he went to college. I mean, what, you know, what are you going to do? Part of that special journey was, uh, stealing money from a disabled veteran who wanted to save his dog. Um, this, it's like the whole party has crossed this line. Um, and they keep doing well enough in these elections to tell themselves that it doesn't matter. Um, I think it does matter on the margins, honestly, um, at come election day. I, I really think it does. But they've convinced themselves that it doesn't matter at all. Right? Like the LOL nothing matters theory of politics comes from every time that we thought that we had Trump backed into a corner. Uh, you know, remember John Oliver on his show would, would do this whole bit um, <laughs> where he would stop the show um, and press a button and say, We got him. And they would like drop a flag and they start playing music. And it was like, Yeah, we got him. Mueller, we got him. This, this, is, this has got to be the end, right? The walls are closing in. And every time they thought the walls were closing in on Trump, his allies in Congress would just bail him out because they don't care. So um, that's, the, that's where the party is. The party is in a place where they have, they have even if they want to get rid of Santos, they have real trouble explaining what's the difference between Santos and Trump, right? Um, they have a real trouble convincing themselves that it's worth possibly giving up the seat uh, because Santos is a liar. And so the, immediately the line was, well, this is for the voters of New York to decide. You know? And it's like, actually, no. <laughs> you can expel people from your party. You, know? you, can, you can say, you're not part of my caucus. You say, you don't get any committee assignments. Um, and the fact that they refuse to do that means they think he still has legs. It's interesting. Uh, by the way, just when you were uh, we were talking, something popped in my head. Uh, there was a senator from Nebraska, Bob Kerry. Uh, I'm sure he's a long since forgotten figure in American politics, but he was a Vietnam vet. Uh, and at some point, he was. A, there was an article that came out. I can't remember the details; are fuzzy in my mind. Which uh, accused him of being part of an, a, a slaughter. I think. Uh, in Vietnam, I, re I remember that. Uh, but his career was pretty much over by the time that came out. So there, actually, when you were saying that, I'm like, oh, you know, there is precedent on this uh, to a certain degree. Bob Kerry actually wanted to be president. Uh, it never, of course, happened. Um, but if nothing matters, and, and you're absolutely correct, uh, that is essentially uh, the tenet of the Republican Party right now. Nothing matters at all. Just get elected uh, and then pass tax breaks for wealthy people, which seems to be the only significant legislation they can pass, uh, and deregulate environmental, uh, the EPA. Uh, if nothing matters, then how are they going to justify 
their crusades, which are coming up, investigations uh, into, I don't know, the various Biden children, um, uh, uh, Joe Biden's uh, president, vice presidential papers, which have landed in his garage. We'll get it. Feel free to riff on that. Uh, but not Donald Trump's. Donald Trump's don't matter, but Do- Joe Biden's do. Mike Pence's don't matter, but Joe Biden's do. So how are they going to uh, convince anyone that there's any degree of legitimacy in what they do if they've dedicated themselves to the principle that nothing matters uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, George Santos, Marjorie Taylor Greene, etc. But it does matter when it comes to Joe Biden. Well, I mean, as we talked about last time, they're totally shameless about hypocrisy. They just don't care. Um, and they, they've been given good reason not to care, right? Because their own voters don't care. Um, and, and, and voters and general election voters in heavily Republican districts don't care either. Um, they're willing to send anybody to Congress. Um, and so when you, when you see that result happening over and over again, it, it does tend to land in a place where, um, holding people accountable for wrongdoing is simply not a priority in the party. Um, and so, on the one hand saying like it's everybody makes up their resume a little bit about George Santos and then um, spending half your time in power investigating the president's uh, cocaine adult son's uh, laptop from 2017 it doesn't make any sense but they don't care because the problem is the problem there is the hypocrisy right it's like well this is what this wasn't what you believed before when it was Democrats in power and they don't they don't care uh, because who's going to stop them um, who, who in the party is willing to get up on TV and say, like, you know, guys, um, the investigation of Hunter Biden's a little bit, it's just a little bit silly. <laughs> you know, um, it, I, I, we should find something else to do with our time. Um, and then you'd have the Fox News, the NOANN, and all these maniacs would get on TV and denounce them as um, insufficiently obeisant to the party line. Um, the other part of it is that, like, None of these scandals make any sense, right? For the, the Hunter Biden stuff doesn't make any sense. Like, I, I, I challenge you, find a Republican. You can do it, right? You can find it. There's one out there somewhere. Find a Republican. Ask them to explain what the scandal is. What is it? Like, what is it that you think happened here? You know? Um, and, they'll, and they'll just, they'll, they'll, they'll start fluttering around. You know, like, well, they found, uh, well, uh, Burisma. Uh, the, the Ukraine, they were paying him 50 grand a month to sit on the board. And it's like, yeah, sure. That, that, does, that was crazy, right? That's a, obviously, it was influence peddling. What does that have to do with Joe Biden? And like, well, he was the vice president at the time. And like, well, does he, you know, is he a sorcerer? Does he, have, does he have sorcerer power over Hunter Biden? He actually tried to stop him from doing it, right? And they're like, well, Hunter Biden was starting these businesses with China. We have this one, we have an email that says, references the big guy, cut for the big guy. And you're like, does it say Joe Biden? No. Do you have any, do you have like, Joe Biden releases taxes. Do you have a money trail about this? No. Do you have any evidence that any of this was illegal? No. Was the business illegal? No. (laughs) So what's the scandal? I don't understand. And they don't understand either. And I've read credible explanations of this that say the complete lack of cohesion in in the conspiracy theory is the point. Um, because it allows the scandal to survive any individual takedown of any specific set of facts. Um, and after a couple of news cycles, the specific set of facts don't matter anymore either. 
All that matters is that there's a there's a scandal with Hunter Biden, and it implicates the big guy Joe Biden, um, and it goes back to the Biden crime family. And I'm like, man, if the if Bidens are a crime family, they suck at it. They are like the <laughs> worst crime family that has ever lived. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but Joe Biden's not even like I shouldn't at the top of a crime family. Shouldn't you be like fabulously wealthy um, and in charge of some minions? You know, it's like no. He's a, it's a terrible crime family. It's not a crime family. This is ridiculous. He has a troubled son who got himself into all kinds of trouble. We have phone calls of Joe Biden trying to like get him to get his get his stuff together. He loves his kid. Um, you know, if you have kids, imagine one of your kids goes off the rails like this after his brother dies um, and starts doing all kinds of crazy things and gets addicted to drugs and um, you know just his life falls apart. Uh, it's it's sad more than anything else. Um, and if you know if Hunter Biden broke laws, you know prosecute the dude. But they have no they have no credible way to connect it to Joe Biden, and I think that's the point. Yeah, just, just keep saying that there's a connection, uh, and it really doesn't matter if there is one. You know, I would be negligent if I left this show and without y- y- allowing you to riff uh, uh, as uh, a college professor, just re- uh, remind everybody, uh, on Ron DeSantis attacking AP African American history. I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I really love to hear your uh, take on this. We've been talking a lot about it on the show. Uh, for the past week with various guests. But Ron DeSantis uh, is uh, making, uh, carrying the culture wars to a new front against uh, advanced placement, uh, African-American history, which, of course, is high school courses uh, that would give uh, students college credits if they pass the test at the end. So your thoughts on this new front on culture wars? Well, I got to give Ron DeSantis credit for commitment, okay, because the rest of the party basically moved on from the critical race theory panic of 2020, 2021, and decided to move on to uh, to persecuting trans people. Um, and Ron DeSantis is like, I can walk and chew gum at the same time, folks, you know, um, and I'm sticking with this. I'm sticking with the CRT stuff. I'm, I'm sticking with the, uh, the effort to, <clears throat> you know, erase black history from, from, from the American story. Um, and so he wants to, you know, he wants to ban uh, the offering of AP African-American studies courses in Florida. Um, and it's caused a huge uproar. Um, it's like, what is, uh, you know, what's woke about African, like what's woke about African-American history? I'm sorry. I mean, you know, you'll find people that are like, well, why don't they have a white history class? And it's like, well, everything is white history. You know, like we're just trying to carve like a little bit of a niche to, to teach about the history of, of black Americans, which is, which is unique. Right. Um, and it just, it's such a revealing episode about what's at the center of the anti-woke panic, you know, um, what's at the center of this, of this, uh, free speech discourse on the right that, that isn't about free speech at all. Right. Um, it's about making sure that whatever speech there is has nothing but good things to say about white people and, and their, and their travails in American history. Um, they, they don't want the real history of the United States to be told. They don't because they don't think it, you know, they don't think it's inspirational and <laughs> it's not. I mean, there, there, are, there are aspects of it that are right, but there, there are aspects that's messy. Um, and um, if you really tell the story from beginning to end of like uh, uh, slavery and the constitution and the civil war and, and Jim Crow and the hundred years of tyranny in the U S South, which were 
authoritarian regimes for, for a century, right? We had a bunch of little authoritarian regimes in America. This is a great theme that Jamel Bowie, the New York Times columnist, likes to talk about a lot, and he's really eloquent about it. Um, United States was not a democracy until like 1965. People don't like to hear that, right? But it's true. You can like 10, 15% of the population can't vote. You're not a democracy, you know? It's like you're, per- it's your, you're, you're persecuting an, an ethnic group and you're calling yourself the world's greatest democracy. Um, and you know how Republicans are always going on about like, you know, you're so fragile, little snowflakes. It's like, this is the ultimate fragility, right? Which is an inability to process the actual history of your country um, and, and to still want to be here, uh, to still think you can make change. Um, in, in my mind, um, I just don't believe in fairy tales, you know? Like the fairy tale of the invention of democracy at the Constitutional Convention and the, the infallible Constitution, which is behind the whole originalist movement, right? Like if you, if you acknowledge that American history is flawed, why would you care? Like, why would you be divining the intent uh, of, of, of like slaveholders writing laws over candlelight in 1787? Why would you care um, if you acknowledged that, that that's the distant past, um, that it was unjust, there's a lot of injustice in American history. Uh, there's a lot of heroic people who have worked really hard to change it. It has gotten better. It's peaks and valleys, right? Like, why can't you teach kids that? That's not teaching white people to hate themselves, you know? Like, to teach the real history of America doesn't mean um, that you have to look all your white students in the eye and be like, you're a piece of garbage, you know? <laughs> you're just a little piece of white garbage, aren't you? Like, that's not what this is about, right? Um, and, and like, are there are there things that happen on the left that go that are like like nuts and <laughs> uh, sure right? It's a big country. There's like a billion school districts and four thousand colleges and universities. Um, and I guarantee you, there's a course being taught somewhere that's that's preposterous um, and takes all of the like irritating elements of the left and rolls them into one special package to be broadcast on Fox News. But what what Ron DeSantis wants is is to teach um, a fake version of American history. To, to Florida students. That's what he wants. Um, on, on the theory, which I'm not sure is really wrong, um, that when people learn the truth about American history, they look at the Republicans and they think like, well, you guys are really full of it, aren't you? <laughs> right? Um, that's, it's, it's part of, like, I think of this as connected to what we were talking about last, last time a little bit, which is young people turning away from the Republican Party, uh, which has been happening for 20 years now. And Ron DeSantis must be must have concluded that part of the reason young people are are turning against the Republican Party is that they've actually learned more than people did in the past uh, about America's actual history, um, and he's he's performing for the racists in his own party. He is a racist, um, and you know MAGA just laps it up, right? Um, I I don't think this is going to stand up in court. Like a lot of this is a theme with DeSantis. Like he does a lot of things that are like. Well, that's not going to stand up in court. <laughs> you know, you're just—it's this is just an act. So he's gross. He's—I mean, uh, this this whole thing broke between the last two times that we talked. And uh, you remember you told you, yeah, you made you made me put a gun to my head and choose between Trump and DeSantis, and now I, I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> he's, he's I, as I recall, uh, you said DeSantis, and I said Trump because of his sense of humor. Uh, and uh, uh, I listen. I also think. Top of everything you just said, uh, it's it, if you if you view an analogy to uh, 
climate change or global warming. If you accept climate change and global warming, there are consequences that you must then uh, pursue. And you have to, like, you know, alter our habits, which would hurt big oil companies. There are implications. There are things will happen as a result. If you accept uh, the, the racist history of our country, uh, then there are also consequences, one of which just the it's a David Ferris conversation. Uh, I've had this. I haven't had this conversation with you in a long time. But the Was- Washington D.C. has to become a state. We cannot tolerate <laughs> the stateless state of citizens uh, in Washington, and that, of course, would change the electoral map, uh, change the Senate makeup. There are consequences to do it. So yes, it fires up MAGA, and there's firing up the base. Uh, but I also believe there's are consequences, uh, which are also disturbing. Uh, David, uh, one final question for you before we go. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Your camera, uh, your camera went out. Uh, our listeners won't can't see, but I can. Um, it doesn't matter anyway about the camera going out. So uh, a few thoughts. I got to hear your thoughts on uh, the pending showdown in the state of Arizona. And the Democratic Party, what it says about the Democratic Party. Uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema will apparently, well, I don't, it's, she'll have a challenger from the left. I guess she'll be running as an independent, not as a Democrat. Uh, your thoughts on the, uh, the upcoming uh, showdown in Arizona? Sure. So, um, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives named Ruben Gallego, Democrat, member of the Progressive Caucus, um, announced earlier this week that he was, he was going to run for Senate. Um, he had, this is, I guess, what we all have to do these days is he put out like a three minute video highlighting his personal biography. <laughs> it was really good. Um, he's got a great story, right? He's a, uh, he's a son of, um, immigrants. His mom was a single mom. He grew up poor, went to Harvard, served in Iraq, uh, saw all kinds of mayhem and combat, um, uh, came back, ran for Congress and, and won. Um, and he's got a, he's got a very inspiring story. The, the bigger picture here is, is, about the Arizona Senate race, about the balance of power in the Senate, and about our, our good friend uh, Kirsten Cinema, um, you know, noted face, noted Facebook Marketplace uh, used shoe seller Kirsten Cinema, um, and and her uh, her gambit last Dece- in December. It feels like a thousand years ago at this point when she switched out of the Democratic Party, became an independent, and the reason that she did that, this was obvious at the time. Does anybody want to read between the lines? Is that she knew she had no chance of winning a Democratic primary for the Senate in 2024. Just she's just dead in the water with the Democrats. Democrats in the state hate her. Independents in the state hate her. Republicans like her a little bit better, but they still hate her. Um, she's liked by no one. That's an incredible political strategy by Kirsten Cinema to become disliked by every every political party, every cohort, every age cohort, um, every demographic in the whole state. Hates their own senator, um, and that's because of her role. Um, in, in, uh, in stopping all kinds of democratic priorities from becoming law by sticking up for the filibuster and thumbs downing the, the minimum wage hike and just a million other things. And also being just like uh, uh, inscrutable and, and irritable about the whole thing too. You know, like she thinks that she's um, um, some kind of like lovable maverick, you know, uh, uh, emulating John McCain. And it's like, that's not how he did it. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's not how he became John McCain. Um, and you, you, sir, you, 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 madam, are no John McCain. <laughs> so yeah. she, she wants yeah. to continue to be a senator from Arizona. She's looking at poll numbers 
and realizing it's going to be very difficult to, to, to win renomination as a Democrat. And she's thinking back like, well, Joe Lieberman did it in 2008, left the party, ran as an independent um, and beat the Democrat and beat both the Democratic and the Republican candidate. Um, and the, the key difference there is that Joe, by, I mean, Joe Lieberman <laughs> was not hated by everyone in the state of Connecticut, which Kirsten Sinema is. So the, the bigger picture here is the fear that if she stays in and it's, it's, Kristen Cinema and Ruben Gallego. Gallego, by the way, has not won the primary yet, but I think um, I think he's the very, very heavy favorite. There's another um, someone else named Greg Stanton, who's more of a moderate. I was thinking about running, but uh, I think Gallego announcing so early and raising a bunch of money is is going to make that a very difficult um, path to 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 travel for Stanton. But um, you know, the fear is if it's a three way race. She'll draw enough votes away from Gallego to throw the race to whatever mega maniac gets nominated by by Arizona Republicans. Um, and her gambit was to scare all Democrats in Arizona out of running against her, like and a, like sort of like create facts on the ground, right? Like I'm I'm an independent now, okay? So you can run somebody against me if you want, but then Carrie Lake will be the senator. Um, notably. <laughs> In none of these scenarios does Kirsten Sinema win the election, right? But, um, but uh, you know, some some data has come out since December, multiple polls of a three-way race showing Kirsten Sinema at like 13% and 16% in a three-way race. The incumbent senator from Arizona pulling in the teens um, against two challengers. And those, those are just, those are DOA numbers, right? Those are polling numbers that mean... No one but like um, the the hedge fund managers that that pull the strings on her as a, as puppeteers is going to be willing to donate to a campaign. Who's going to work on this campaign, right? Like who's going to staff the offices? Um, you you can't win a Senate race when you have no constituency because you've alienated everyone. Right? Um, and so Gallegos come out, you know, guns blazing here. Um, the polls with the three Ray race are very are very close. Um, everyone's using Carrie Lake as a stand-in. Um, and it's, I like to refer to her as former gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, but uh, <laughs> in Carrie Lake's mind, she is the governor of Arizona. Um, yeah, she's still going on TV doing this Trump thing where she's like, I think a judge should just overturn the election and, and yeah. put me in the governor's mansion. Uh, and it's like, Carrie, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, Judges can't do that. That's not a thing. Um, but she hasn't actually given up the fight here yet. But the assumption is... Um, once the legal nonsense peters out in a couple of months, that she'll that she'll mount a campaign for Senate because she's now, you know, one of the more well-known Republicans in the state and commands the loyalty of the uh, of the of the MAGA millions. And uh, and the polls right now. I mean, look, we're two years out from an election. Uh, you know, I wouldn't put too much stock in polling at this point, but it shows a close race between Gallego and Lake. Um, and uh, I don't know how. I just. At this point, but I honestly don't know how cinema stays in this race. Um, you're you're polling so badly that no one can see you winning, yeah. um, and there's a very clear pattern in American politics where when an independent or third party challenger um, who's obviously not going to win actually usually underperforms their polling on election day, right? So she's likely to do worse than thirteen percent when the actual election rolls around because people are going to go in and. And think to themselves, like, you know, yeah, yeah. Gallego's a little too left for me, but, like, do I want Carrie Lake as my senator? No. Bye, Kirsten. Um, she has zero She has zero percent chance of winning this race. Uh, the only way I could see her winning 
is if she did just like a complete 180 um, and came out and was like, okay, no, no, let's actually filibuster's terrible, right? What a terrible institution the filibuster is. Boy, we really need to get that Voting Rights Act passed and codify Roe v. Wade. But we got to get this done in the Senate. Too bad we don't have the House anymore. None of this stuff can actually happen. But she could just flip on all this stuff um, because there's no way any of it's going to happen anyway. Um, And then she'd have, like, I guess what I'm saying is she has to win back the left. Um, And I, that's close to impossible at this point. She's so reviled in her own state. She's so reviled nationally. She is like um, just a representative for the whole party of like just pointless corruption and fealty to special interests and uh, ideological incoherence and betrayal. That's, that's her brand. Her brand is betrayal. And um, that's not a workable solution. And um, you're not gonna be able to get people to, to do all the work of a serious Senate campaign for two years, knowing they're going to lose. I just or, or, I don't see how it's going to happen. Or the all other alternative uh, is to go MAGA. Right. And, and right. Uh, just, just, just make it, just run as a Republican. Uh, if I'm Joe Biden, I just, whatever she wants. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. ambassador to, uh, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. one of those like dumb <laughs> islands where people stash their money. You know, yeah. the, the new ambassador to the Cayman Islands, uh, Kirsten Sinema, everybody. Um, yeah. And just get her off the stage, clear the decks, um, get her out of, we have a Democrat as, as the governor there. That Democrat could appoint Gallego to the seat, make him an incumbent for a special election, and then it's a whole different ballgame. Um, but uh, Sinema's not going to be, Sinema's, uh, Sinema will not be a senator in 2025. I would, I would be willing to bet a very large amount of money on that. Whether it's going to be Gallego, that's, an, that's the big question here. You know, uh, listening to you riff on that, I just thought I, if you substitute the name Lori Lightfoot, yeah, first time by it could work in, here in Chicago. It's, it's just sounded so much like our own local situation, uh, which we will not get into because I talk about it enough uh, the rest of the week. We'll hold off the deep dive into California. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a showdown coming up in California. Adam Schiff today announced, or maybe it was yesterday, I've lost track of time, that he will be running for Senate. I I guess he felt that the Republicans kicking him off the Intelligence Committee uh, is the best thing that could happen to him. That's a compelling argument for that, by the way. Uh, And I know the the left in California is not ready to embrace Adam Schiff. So that's a fight uh, that will be coming in. I, I presume Diane Feinstein is going to step down. Um, has she announced, David? I've missed that. Has she announced what? Capable. I don't think that she knows what time of day it is anymore. So she, I think her staff is scrambling to um, to figure out how to get her out. But she's like, I'm going to think about it for a while longer. And it's like <laughs> you are 90 years old, in yeah. an obvious mental decline. Diane, yeah. it's time. Yeah. It's time, time to go. She she would lose the primary very badly anyway. I'm not worried about her. Well, don't they have uh uh what are they, they don't have a primary system, do they? In California, they have a, they have a top two primary. So oh, they top two, right? So it's not a, a traditional party primary. It's uh, uh open. But I don't think that she would come in the top two. That's what yes. I'm saying. Um, I hear you. I hear you. She's, she's worn out her welcome, and she's you know, and she's a, she's at an age where you should not be running for public office. Like, come on, you know. Um. All right, David Ferris, thank you very much. And uh, it's always a blast talking to you. And there's a few other things I was going to ask you about, but we'll just have to hold off. We didn't even get into uh, Pensgate and his documents. We'll get off. I guess we'll have to have that conversation the next time, uh, see if that story has legs. Uh, all the special, pro- special prosecutors who have been appointed to investigate. <laughs> <laughs> Do they bump yeah. into each other in the hallway? I mean, that's. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, anyway, David, right, it's great to be here, Ben. Thanks again, and uh, I look forward to next time. All right, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.